0: to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host Larry Elise. Today's episode is sponsored by Pondex. Pondex is a unique way to spice up your podcast, refresh it, discover new content, just shuffle up the deck, pick a card, and let the conversation grow. Uh, You can visit the link in the description Be sure to use the promo code TCNS for 10% off your order. Today we're discussing the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. I'm bringing to you today the story of a girl who never returned. It's the best Agatha Christie novel that never was disappearance of Manhattan perfume heiress Dorothy Arnold. Now that I have your attention, let us dive in. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was born into a wealthy family on July 1st, 1885. Daughter of the head of an import company and the niece of Supreme Court Justice Rufus Peckham. Dorothy was an heiress and a New York socialite. She was educated at Bryn Mawr was an aspiring writer at the time of her disappearance on December 12, 1910. At the age of 25, she vanished from the streets of New York City, never to be seen or heard from again. Strange, he disappeared from the busy streets of New York. Now let's dig in. Dorothy Arnold was born in New York City, the second of four children of perfume importer Francis Rose Arnold and his wife, Mary Martha Parks Arnold. She had an older brother, John, and two younger siblings, Dan Hinckley and Marjorie Brewster. Arnold's father was a Harvard University graduate who was a senior partner of, of FR Arnold & Company, a company that imported fancy goods. His sister, Harriet Maria Arnold, was married to Supreme Court Justice Rufus Beckham. Arnold was educated at the Belton School for Girls in New York City and later attended Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, where she majored in literature and language. She graduated in 1905. After her graduation, Arnold continued to live at the family home at 108 East 79th Street and attempted to begin a career as a writer. In spring 1910, she submitted a short story to McClears Magazine, which was rejected. This would be the start of many rejections. Arnold's friends and family, who were largely amused by her writing aspirations, teased her constantly about the rejection. This prompted Arnold to rent a post office box to receive correspondence from magazines and publishing houses. She later submitted a second short story to the same magazine called The Poinsettia and the Flame in November 1910. This was also rejected. According to her friends, the second rejection left her dejected and embarrassed two months before she disappeared. Arnold asked her father if she could take an apartment in Greenwich Village in order to write. Francis Arnold forbade Dorothy to move out of the family home, telling her that, quote, a good writer can write anywhere. Dorothy Arnold continued to pursue a writing career but found no success. So the story is turning its path on December 12, 1910, the day she disappeared. It's still one of the major cases that hold its place in a police case file. The controversies say one of Dorothy's friend is related with the missing. On a day of her disappearance, Dorothy Arnold left her home in New York City at around 11 a.m. She told her mother, Mary Martha Parks Arnold, that she would be spending the day shopping for an evening gown for an upcoming event. Mary asked her if she wanted company, she said no. This was not unusual because her mother was in poor health. Dorothy left the house with the clothes on her back and a little more than $25 in her possession. She was carrying a large muff in which she could have hidden a small amount of clothing. However, after she disappeared, her family noted that none of her clothing, clothes were missing. After leaving her house, Dorothy Arnold went to Parking Tilford Candy Store at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 27th Street, where she bought some chocolate on the Arnold Family Credit. From there, she went on to Brentano's Bookstore on Fifth Avenue and 27th Street. She purchased a book again on the Arnold Family Credit. When she left the store, she ran into her friend, Gladys King. Her disappearance occurred immediately after she met with Gladys. No one else recalled seeing Dorothy Arnold that day. Now, the most interesting fact. Now, the most interesting fact behind her disappearance is on the day of her disappearance, there was nothing unusual found in the neighborhood. Rather, it was quite normal. Not one person who saw Dorothy on the day of her disappearance noticed anything unusual about her behavior. She was not seen purchasing the dress that she spoke of, so it can be assumed she either lied but she stopped in some way before she could fulfill her plans. On the day of her disappearance, she was dressed in the height of fashion and was a familiar face in New York City at the time. Therefore, it's unlikely she could have made it far without being noticed. That said, the odd behavior of her parents when she went missing made a controversy those days. They never reported the case to the police. That evening, when Dorothy had not returned home for dinner, the Arnold family began making inquiries among her friends. They were not able to turn up any news of their daughter. Oddly enough, later that evening, a friend of Dorothy called her and Mary Arnold and told her that Dorothy was in bed with a headache. Even strangers the fact that her parents were aware of her disappearance and did not call the police. Instead, they contacted a lawyer named Keith, who was a friend of their son, John. It was the lawyer who played the role of police in the early stages. Keith arrived at the Arnold house and did a thorough inspection of Dorothy's room. He turned up nothing suspicious except for some badly burned papers in the fireplace. Those were unreadable. There was nothing missing, no evidence to suggest that she ran away. He continued his investigation by going to hospitals, morgues, looking for, her, for the young lady. This was yet another dead end. When he arrived at the Arnold home, Keith was taken directly to Dorothy's room. Everything there seemed in perfect order and Mrs. Arnold and Marjorie assured him that all the missing girl's clothes were hanging in the closet, except for what she had worn that day. Opening a desk drawer, Keith found a pile of personal letters, some with foreign postmarks. On the desktop, he noted two transatlantic steamship folders. Getting down on his knees, Keith peered into the fireplace. Here he discovered a small mound burned papers, but when he probed with his fingers, he saw no writing visible on the charred remains. As Keith rose to his feet, John Arnold suggested that the burned papers might be Dorothy's rejected manuscript. Dorothy Arnold's formidable father had not only inherited a large sum of money, but he had made considerably more as the head of F.R. Arnold and Company importers. To a young lawyer like Keith, Arnold was potentially a valuable client. To obtain the old man's business, Keith was fully prepared to become, for the moment, a private detective. He now suggested the search of morgues, hospitals, and even jails. Further, he offered to conduct this grisly search himself, still without informing the police. Over the weeks he spent in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, going to hospitals, morgues, and even jails, looking for the young lady. his search would lead nowhere. Finally, Keith recommended that the family call upon the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Pinkerton officials listened to the story of the disappearance and immediately mailed descriptive circular on Dorothy to police departments all over the country. A reward of $1,000 was offered for any information leading to her return. It took them more than six months to contact the police. The reason they say that Hiding this case from the public was to keep it private and they didn't want the media to ruin their life. Six weeks after Dorothy's disappearance, her family finally contacted the police. The police wanted to make the news of Dorothy's disappearance public. But Dorothy's father, Francis Arnold, was strongly against it. Three days later, he realized that he had no choice and the press was alerted. The police investigation turned out to be futile and the case has since grown cold. Very few clues exist that may tell us what happened to Dorothy Arnold, the clues that do exist seem to be easily explained away. For example, Dorothy had a secret engagement with a a man named Junior Griscom, of which her family disapproved. This may sound fishy, but there was absolutely no evidence that they had a falling out or had run away together. In fact, Junior put out several ads imploring Dorothy to contact him, but to no avail, he eventually moved on with his life. Now, there is one conspiracy theory that suggests that Dorothy was heartbroken that her parents mocked her for wanting to become a writer and because two of her stories had been rejected by publishers. The idea is that she might have committed suicide, believing that she was a failure. It is true that she had been mocked by her family and rejected by publishers. However, no one had evidence that she was anything but happy on the day she disappeared. She showed no signs of suicidal tendencies. She left no notes and her body was not found at any location likely for a suicide. Frances Arnold believed she had not disappeared but had been killed while walking through Central Park. Once again, there's no evidence to support the theory. The only thing certain is that Dorothy Arnold left her home in a happy state, went shopping, and promptly disappeared, never to be seen or heard from again. As one newspaper remarked, she disappeared from one of the busiest streets on Earth, at the sunniest hour of a brilliant afternoon, with thousands within sight and reach, men and women who knew her on every side, and officers of the law thickly shown, strewn about her path. How, why did the young heiress disappear of her own accord? Was she kidnapped and murdered? The total mystery of the Dorothy Arnold case is an unfathomable ball today as it was 50 years ago. Dorothy Arnold was hardly the madcap kick-up-her-heels type of girl who might easily get into trouble. One had simply to look at her wide, placid face, place to realize that she was more studious than frivolous. She had graduated from Bryn Mawr five years before and still retained the serene, slightly lofty demeanor of the ultra-serious female collegiate. A quiet-looking, sturdy girl with a healthy complexion. She had brown hair, done up in a high propador, and steady blue eyes. Let us see what happened in further investigations by detectives, and these detectives were hired because the Arnold family did not not cause their daughter's disappearance or did not want their daughter's disappearance to draw unwanted media attention, and this was before the New York police started their work. Since her disappearance, reported sightings of the heirs popped up, nearly every year afterwards, and many imposters claimed to be her in a bid to attain her fortune. People from all over the world claimed to have seen her. Conspiracies around what actually happened to Dorothy Arnold spread like wildfire. One theory suggested that the heiress had run away and committed suicide after becoming bereft from receiving constant rejections from publishers. Another theory suggested that she had become pregnant, possibly with Griscom's child, and died during underground abortion. This theory was actually supported by a doctor who ran an underground woman's clinic known as The House. He claimed to have performed a procedure on Dorothy Arnold and that a surgical complication had caused her death. There was also suspicions of murder. Six years after her disappearance, an inmate at the Rhode Island State Penitentiary named Edward Glenn Norris claimed he helped bury a body that matched Dorothy Arnold's description. Some suspected the man had been hired by Griscom, but when investigators searched the attic, where glenn morris said her body had been kept they found nothing by april 1921 arnold's parents had spent over $100,000 to find her and the case officially went cold but then that same year a shocking statement came out of the police department the case had been solved according to police captain john h ayers quote all that i can say is that it's been solved by the department he told the media Dorothy Arnold is no longer listed as a missing person. Captain Ayers gave no more details, but added her parents, relatives, and friends who had been led to follow in all directions. Clues sent in multitudes of letters suddenly ceased their activity. A lawyer for the family denied the case had been cracked, stating that Captain Ayers seems too intimate, that the mystery of Dorothy Arnold's disappearance has been solved, and that the family for some reason to get the solution a secret. The whole thing is a damn lie. The conflict between the police and her family on the case fueled even more speculation around her disappearance, but the mystery was never truly solved. Sadly, the story of Dorothy Arnold's disappearance remains one of the biggest and perhaps most tragic mysteries in New York City's history. It is clear that she's still not alive Years after Arnold disappeared, numerous alleged sightings from all over the U.S. were still being reported. police continued to investigate the reports, but all proved to be false. The Arnold family also continued to receive letters from women claiming to be Dorothy Arnold. These were also investigated and also proved to be false. One such letter came from an attorney in California who claimed that Arnold was living as Ellen Nibbins in Los Angeles, claimed that her father disputed case gained attention again on April 8, 1921, when, during a lecture in New York, Captain Ayers of the Bureau of Missing Persons claimed that Dorothy Arnold's fate had been known to the Bureau and her family for some time. Ayers refused to elaborate and would not say if Arnold was alive or dead. Later, Ayers claimed that he was misquoted and denied that Arnold's fate was known. In the weeks following his daughter's disappearance, Francis Arnold spent approximately $250,000 trying to find his daughter. He continued to maintain that he believed Dorothy had been kidnapped and murdered on the day she disappeared or shortly after. Francis died on April 6, 1922. In his will, he intentionally made no provisions for Dorothy, stating that he was satisfied that she is not alive. According to Keith, Dorothy's mother, Mary, did not share her husband's opinion that her daughter had been kidnapped and murdered and remained hopeful that she was still alive. Sadly, Mary died on December 29th, 1928. Shortly after her death, Keith publicly stated he believed that Arnold had committed suicide because of her failed writing career. In an obituary for Mary Arnold, United Press Associations referenced the hunt for Dorothy Arnold as the really great search of the age and one that did much to develop modern newspaper police coverage. During the summer of 1910, Dorothy had dutifully gone with her family to their summer home at York Harbor, Maine. Then in mid-September, she had asked her parents if she might spend a week in Cambridge with a former college classmate named Theodora Bates. Her parents extended permission and on September 16th, Dorothy departed, but she did not go to Cambridge. She stayed in Boston, was met by Junior Griswold, who had arrived the day before and registered at the Hotel Essex. On the morning of Dorothy's arrival, Junior had gone to the Hotel Lennox where he reserved a room and her. During the following week, the two were seen together constantly looking happy and animated, making no attempts to hide their identities or their presence in Boston. At the Lenox, Dorothy registered under her real name with the correct New York address. Two days later, two days before leaving Boston, she visited a pawn shop on Boylston Street, obtaining $60 for $500 worth of assorted personal jewelry. Again, she used her right name and address. It was the sharp-eyed pawnbroker who exploded to the press and police the story in her Boston sojourn. On September 24th, Dorothy had returned to York Harbor. Griscom went back to Pittsburgh, there to prepare for a trip to Europe with his father and mother. Early in October, the Arnold's returned to New York. It was at this time that Dorothy made her request for a Greenwich Village apartment and wrote her two stories. Then, Just before Thanksgiving, she again drew her former classmate Theodora Bates into the complicated web of her life when she decided to visit her friend in Washington, D.C., where Theodora was teaching. Dorothy arrived at Theodora's home at 1820 Mintwood Place, late Wednesday night. On Thanksgiving morning, she expressed a desire to remain in bed. That same morning, a bulky envelope was delivered for Dorothy. Here inside is a riddle deep within a riddle. This was Thanksgiving, when businesses closed down and no daily mail was delivered. Dorothy may have requested the general post office in New York to forward her mail over the weekend, but it is unlikely that this would have been done with such exceptional dispatch, even if she had left postage for special delivery. As the reports say, she and Freddie further astounded Theodore. She came downstairs for breakfast, fully dressed for travel and carrying her bag, and said, I always planned to leave today. She spent the rest of the Thanksgiving weekend at home, reading and sewing. On December 11th, 1935, the 25th year after the disappearance, police told reporters that tips on Dorothy Arnold still came in. About six months before, tips reclaimed to have seen her at Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street. Despite the fact that it would be difficult to recognize her after a quarter of a century, the detectives were dispatched to the corner in question. There they stood for several hours, peering, vainly into the faces of passersby. Reports have said nothing since that day. The Dorothy Arnold case has been really a disappearance which had from the beginning, no standard in rationality, being logically both impenetrable and irreconcilable. It remains obstinate and perplexing, a gall to human curiosity, an impossible problem for reason and analytical power. That being said, we are signing out. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll catch you up later with another episode. Till then, stay safe and stay tuned. And follow us on Twitter at True Crime NS. Like us on Facebook, True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to this video. Subscribe to the channel, give us your thoughts on this case, and yes, I'll catch you later.